So welcome to this edition of Talk To Me with David Ward. I am here with Brian Vollmer, lead singer of Helix, and we're going to talk a little bit about Canadian rock history. Mm -hmm. um, so Brian, if you could just sort of just tell me a little bit about, you know, when you were growing up and uh, where did you grow up and first getting into music? Well, I was born in Kitchener, Ontario. I moved at a very early age up to uh, Listowel, Ontario. My dad bought a farm up there in 1959 and um, my parents were pretty poor. Uh, I remember we had no heat upstairs in the farmhouse. I used to sleep with my two brothers in one bed with six of my grandmother's quilts piled on top of us. Uh, in the winter, the septic tank would freeze, and so we had to uh, go in a pail at the top of the stairs. There was no toilets. Um, in the summer, a lot of times, there wasn't any running water that we could take a bath. Um, so it was a very um, lean upbringing, let's say, but my parents always gave us a lot of love, and. And uh, I never saw uh, anything negative come from my parents when I was raised, being raised. And um, when, I, when I left there, I went to work for Snyder's Meats in Kitchener at the meat plant, and I hated it. <laughs> then I went to work for Bowers Skates, and I always wanted to be in a rock band. And uh, eventually I got into one in, in Kitchener, a bunch of guys I had met at the uh, Central Ontario Battle of the Bands. And um, we became the Helix Field Band, later shortened our name to uh, Helix. What was Kitchener like? This is what, early 70s, mid 70s? This would be 1974. Uh, well, there's a very vibrant bar scene for one thing, and uh, our peers were bands like uh, Moxie, uh, Major Hoople's Boarding House, Copper Penny, where the, the local um, Kitchener bands, Charity Brown. Uh, so at first we wanted to get out in the circuit and, and you know, go live the life and, and that's what we did. We started out in uh, Northern Ontario. We were booked by a DRAM booking agency in Kitchener. We also met our manager, William Sipe, uh, who worked at the agency there. Uh, we went to Northern Ontario and if you could survive Northern Ontario, then they'd send you out to the East Coast and every time they'd send us somewhere, we'd lose a couple more members because they couldn't hack it or they realized the uh, lifestyle wasn't for them. And uh, after we did the East Coast and survived, and they sent us out west, and, and the Western camp was a totally different scene back then. We actually had color TVs in the room in our own bathroom, and um, we loved it out Western Canada, and to this day, we have a very, very strong following in Western Canada. Um, we, back then, uh, bar owners would actually uh, tell the manager what songs they want, cover songs they wanted the band to learn. You'd go in, you'd do cover songs, and when you could master doing cover songs, then the audience, the public would allow you to do original material. And the way we did is we slowly worked it into our sets between the, the cover stuff, the unknown stuff. And uh, eventually we uh, did one complete set of original material. This is about 1979, I believe. And we put on the second set and we're still going. Then we put the third set out uh, on that was totally, so we had a totally original night and the band nearly went bankrupt. This was just previous to getting signed to Capitol Records. So for a period, we had to go back to doing cover material, uh, you know, to put people in the seats and bars uh, and make some money because this is the way we made a living. And then we got signed to Capitol Records and we never looked back. Do you remember ever feeling a... Uh disadvantage of being in Canada versus the giant United States next door, especially in the music industry? Well, the only disadvantage I felt in Canada was actually the, the uh, music industry in Canada itself. Uh, if you look at 
if you take a, any Helix song almost and try to stick it in the playlist between, I don't know, Here for a Good Time by Trooper and, um, I don't know, something by Parachute Club, it's pretty hard for Helix to fit. And so I, I felt more blowback from the Canadian music industry than I ever felt uh, from the American music industry. In fact, I always consider ourselves uh, music-wise more of a, an American band. And um, the proof in the pudding is kind of when we went down the States, we got uh, very welcomed by Americans. And uh, to this day, I still got lots of fan mail from the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the uh, the years leading up to kind of you guys? Tell me how you got your break or what you consider your big break. When did it happen? Well, there was no such thing as a break. I think what, uh, you know, we just worked hard. Uh, we became one of the top grossing bands in the bars. You know, all, all the bar owners really cared about back then was selling liquor and making money. And, and we were one of the top uh, bar bands in that respect. And... Um, when we finally got original material and we started shopping around on, on uh, the No Rest of the Wicked album, we'd already done two independent albums previously, which one had become a hit in Texas and led to our first tour of the United States down in Texas. And the second one became a number one import in England. And it was right at the same time as uh, Iron Maiden was getting exposure, Judas Priest, other uh, um, English bands at that time and uh, one of the guys in the Canadian record company was a guy named David Muntz who was from England and and he saw the potential in Helix as as jumping on that wave of uh, metal bands and he was basically coaxed capital uh, Canada into looking at the band when all the labels come out and looked at us one by one, Warner Brothers, CBS, all those uh, labels, they rejected us and said, nah, we pass. And then it came down to Capital Canada and uh, Aquarius, and uh, Capital trumped the Aquarius offer. And then Dean Cameron went and said, look, I want to get you signed to the American label, not the Canadian label. I think it'll be to your advantage. And so uh, Dean Cameron saw to it that we got signed to the capital U.S. label with worldwide distribution. And uh, uh, as a result, we were never signed uh, to a Canadian label ever. And was there ever a moment for you guys where, as you said, you guys were working musicians. You had been doing this for a while before that mm -hmm. big album hit. So was it a shock for you guys when things started to get big and you started to open for larger bands or was it just a gradual progression? It was a gradual pro progression and um, I think our, our first uh, concert date was actually with Max Webster and B.B. Gabor at the Kitchener Auditorium and uh, that's when we just had Breaking Loose or White Lace and Black Leather out, I'm not sure, it was 1980. And those two independent albums led to the major labels taking us seriously because they thought really we were a joke. And uh, they called us dinosaurs and letters they wrote back to us. And I can show you some of the rejection letters, which I've still kept uh, downstairs. In fact, I framed them. Uh, and they only motivated us more to, uh, uh, you know, get that record deal. We actually got offered a deal by Attic Records in Canada, and we turned them down. And uh, I remember at the time they came back to us and said, who the hell do you think you are to turn down our deal? And we said, we're Helix, so fuck you. And um, so we ended up getting a huge record deal, which gave us an advantage over a lot of these other Canadian acts that did take that deal. I know that Anvil took the Attic deal, so did Lee Aaron. Um, and uh, to an extent in years to come, that I think held them back a bit because the label 
See, back in the early days of rock and roll in Canada, a lot of Canadian labels would come to bands and say, look, we want to sign you know, a worldwide deal. And the band would go, wow, that's great, right? Then they get signed, and after they got signed, they'd realize that the Canadian label had no distribution outside of Canada. So even though, say, guys like James Leroy with Touch of Magic would have a number one uh, song in Canada, uh, he couldn't get arrested in the United States because he couldn't get a release on the actual record. So we were never uh, bound by contracts like that. And so we went, when we got signed to Capitol in 1983, uh, it just opened the doors to all these new territories for us. And, you know, it's a different ball game at that point. You have any funny stories or interesting stories that pop to mind about being in the studio? Well, there's lots of things I remember. One of the things I remember was recording um, She's Too Tough over in uh, England with Mike Stone and uh, a fly getting caught between the heads being squashed on the two-inch tape. And they were worried that they'd have to, uh, that they were going to lose the song because it was just blank, you know. Uh, but uh, we got the fly scraped off and all the little fly guts and it went on. But uh, lot, lots of stories. I remember in the same recording session uh, yeah, we did at the Manor Studios, which was owned by Richard Branson. And uh, they used to have a restaurant right inside uh, uh, of the studio. And there used to be... Uh, an old hippie mama that was the cook there and she smoked great big cannons of black hash and there was a two-way uh, uh, window. You could see out in the street but nobody could see in. And one morning uh, uh, Fritz came down to have breakfast and he was sitting there and uh, this guy tapped on the show and said, mind if I sit down and have breakfast with you? And, and, and Fritz looked over and it was Freddie Mercury. He said, yeah, you can sit down, Fred. And uh, Brian May came down to the studios to watch us record. Um, so there's, that's just some right off the top of my head, but I'm sure if I thought about it, I could give you a thousand stories about the studio. Can you tell us a bit about the music you've recently released and also stuff that's coming up? Last year we released uh, The Devil's Having a Party Tonight on a vinyl and with the flip side, the Tequila song. Uh, I also had my solo album come out last year, which I recorded with Gavin Brown, who, as you know, has won several Junos, a Grammy for, with Lady Gaga. He also played drums on the album, and, and Gavin has played drums for uh, Big Sugar, Sky Diggers, Sarah Harmer, and extremely uh, um, professional musicians working on that, that particular disc. Sean Kelly, who plays for Nelly Furtado, Lee Air, and Alan Frew. Uh, Cheryl Lescombe, who uh, actually used to sing background in the Long John Baldry uh, band. And we actually did one of Long John Baldry's songs on the album. Uh, and Daryl from Helix, and uh, am I leaving anybody out? That's about it, I guess. Where are you in your music journey right now? Is there a certain kind of vibe you're feeling, someone you're listening to, this is something you're really into? I do pick up new music now and then. Um, they say that you don't fall, uh, that you, your influence are usually what you first start listening to. Uh, I, I heard Lemmy say that from Motorhead. Yeah, it's true. A lot of times I go back to uh, more of the rhythm and blues stuff that I grew up on, uh, Steppenwolf and uh, Humble Pie, and that's the type of stuff I like listening to. But there's a lot of new bands out there. The Lazies, great band. Uh, I think they're from Australia, uh, Airborne. Uh, but I like the more whiskey-throated singers and the more uh, probably R&B-rooted stuff. Brian Vollmer, lead singer of Helix. Thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome.